Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing all right, wherever you happen to be. Be sure to subscribe to The Other People Podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep it going. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Today, my guest is Anne Elizabeth Moore. Her new essay collection is called Body Horror, Capitalism, Fear, Misogyny, Jokes. So as I was running from machine gun fire, um, because my friends and sources were being shot at, you know, looking down the street because you gotta run fast when machine guns are shooting at you. and my legs started hurting my feet started hurting in this really particular way and so i'm literally running fearing for my life i wasn't being i wasn't the target i wasn't being shot at but it was one of the scarier moments in my life and i'm totally realizing that there's something wrong with my body in a way that i hadn't realized it before that this wasn't all right that was ann elizabeth moore a new and revised edition of her celebrated essay collection is now available from the Feminist Press. The book is called Body Horror, Capitalism, Fear, Misogyny, Jokes. The essays in this collection are both wide-ranging and also connected in surprising ways, cataloging how the forces of capitalism take their toll on the physical autonomy of human beings, women in particular. 
In this collection, there are explorations of the Cambodian garment industry, the history of menstrual products, the gender biases of patent law. And there are also essays that delve into Anne Elizabeth Moore's harrowing and difficult experiences with autoimmune diagnoses. Body Horror was a Lambda Literary Award finalist, and it is also the official May pick of the Other People Book Club. This new edition features a brand new introduction and several new essays, along with illustrations by Xander Marot. Anne Elizabeth Moore was born in Winter, South Dakota. She is the author of several books, including Unmarketable, the Eisner Award-winning Sweet Little Cunt, Gentrifier, a memoir, which was an NPR Best Book of the Year, and other books. She is the founding editor of Houghton Mifflin's Best American Comics and the former editor of Punk Planet, The Comics Journal, and The Chicago Reader. She is a Fulbright senior scholar and has taught in the Visual Critical Studies Department at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. It's great to have Anne Elizabeth Moore on the Other People Show. Once again, her new book is called Body Horror, Capitalism, Fear, Misogyny, Jokes. This new edition available now from the Feminist Press. Here she is, folks. This is my conversation with Anne Elizabeth Moore. I think we were at a fancy hotel bar in Chicago and I'd agreed to meet this editor for a slightly disreputable publisher, um, but I liked the editor a lot. And we decided to meet for drinks and she kind of said, so we want to publish a book by you. And I was like, mm, I don't know, the publisher is super weird. And she was like, yeah, but you could do anything you wanted. And I was like, well, I have this bad idea for a book that collects all these weird ideas that I'm into and sort of mashes them together and no one will read it. So are you still interested? And she was like, yeah, actually, that sounds great. <laughs> and so we spent, I don't know, maybe the next year pulling essays and compiling the first edition of Body Horror and then it was published and people got it. They got it. They loved it. Like, I mean, people, I get, I'm lucky enough to get a lot of strong, devoted fan reaction to my work, particularly my work in comics, but, you know, some of my political work as well. But this, people were just like, like writing me long love letters about this book. And they still, did even several years after the book became impossible to find after it went out of print, the first edition. So I was excited to bring it back into print and release this new edition after the pandemic <laughs> and everything else that like, you know, had emerged since the first edition had gone out of print that was like so relevant to those essays and how they fit together. Do you have a sense of why people responded so strongly, like with the benefit of hindsight and why it, this book and these particular essays and the subject matter that they deal with resonated so strongly? I mean, I think one, one thing is that the contents of the original 
edition did both collectively in terms of pending political and social events, they did sort of portend this political moment. But I also think that what people really got into was this idea that you don't need to separate a mood from a keen interest in politics from a, a sort of wide-ranging um, fascination with or curiosity about the world. I think people felt like they'd wanted something that could break through the genre boundaries that we've all been told are there and are important for whatever reason. Or, you know, this idea, one of the pieces in the book talks about sort of political organizing and labor organizing among models. And, you know, that is something that's been ongoing in the modeling industry for a really long time. But I think people that weren't aware of that were just really excited that you could connect these seemingly totally disparate things and still consider yourself like a thoughtful, engaged, intelligent person. Well, let me, let me just like interrupt for a second, because I think this is one of the thrills of reading the book for me was, I, I'm forgive me if I'm mistaken, but the essay that you just referenced about models unionizing and organizing is called Model Employee. Is that the mm -hmm. one? Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the things you do here, one of the connections that you make that really excited me was this comparison or this parallel that you draw between garment workers in Cambodia and models who work in the fashion industry and how they really share a lot more in common than one might think. And I have to say, this was not something I had spent time thinking about, but after reading your book, it's hard for me to think about clothing, period, without considering where it comes from. And to think about the fashion industry and all of its implications, not only the treatment of models but and garment workers, but the environmental impacts of the garment industry and the way that we're constantly being sold. But this idea that we need more stuff, <laughs> you know, all of it. So it just, I love when a book does that for me, kind of takes the familiar and defamiliarizes it. Yeah. Uh, I do too. It was a problem with that essay. And, you know, I had been writing on the garment industry for seven or eight years as well. And the bulk of my work, but also that essay in particular, made it very difficult for me to be okay about wearing clothes in any way. And so that was actually an example where it was kind of bad <laughs> that I was able to connect all these things. Because then I would get up in the morning and be like, I can't believe but, I have to get dressed now. But, this is the by worst. the way, for those of you listening, Anne is, I don't think clothed at all, but I, you know, it's, this is it's <laughs> this a political statement she's making. <laughs> but it is, you know, it is, uh, I think, an outgrowth as well, your interest in this subject matter of the time that you spent living in Cambodia, where I believe you lived in a dormitory and taught young Cambodian girls how to create zines, right? Yeah, for the first, my first time that I spent there, I was there for a winter. Well, what in the U.S. was winter. Yeah, living in a dormitory with 
36 young Cambodian women that were just going to college for the first time in the history of the country, large, the first large group of young women to live together and go to college. And uh, they just moved out from the provinces. And so I was put into this very interesting social situation. Of how, like, how did that happen? Oh, such a long story, Brad, but I... <laughs> <laughs> the short version is that I had been running a magazine called Punk Planet in Chicago for uh, for something years. And we uh, realized we needed to shut down. It was 2007. And the post office had just changed their postal regulations. And they had sort of changed the bulk mail rates enough that we that it was now just suddenly too expensive for us to make a, a physical magazine anymore. And, you know, it, my hyperactive mind or whatever, I was, I was just like, this is a this democracy thing is bullshit. This is bullshit democracy. So I started Googling phrases like bullshit democracy and fake democracy. <laughs> As democracy one does. That is lie. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Cambodia came up and I, knew very little about the country. The Khmer Rouge and rice paddies was about it. And um, maybe some about the garment industry there. Uh, but I, but I was like, Oh, interesting. Like they, they actually kind of understand what it's like for a democracy in the throes of failure or that never quite functioned the way it was supposed to like, I'll just go there, you know? So I started kind of researching various places that I might be able to go and spend some time and like not just be a leech or a backpacking smoke dope smoking loser um although I obviously am also good at those things (laughs) um and yeah and I was invited to go live at this dormitory that had really just opened that was the first dormitory for young women to live at to go to college because when the Khmer Rouge came through in the 1970s and they shut down all the schools and they burned a lot of buildings to the ground and they abolished the educational institution. And they were finally, all of these universities were finally rebuilt in the 1990s. You know, they didn't build dormitories for women because there was no presumption that women would go to college. And so like, Men could go and they could live with relatives and that was reasonably safe or they could live in the monasteries and that was fine. But for, you know, 15, almost 20 years at that point, women weren't able to go to college except for in very special circumstances where people happened to have family members living in the city and the, the girl child could go off and, and live there. And so this was the first dormitory that was like really the pathway to education for these young women. And these girls were amazing. I mean, this is why you should never ask me about Cambodia because I start talking about the girls and I just bananas. They were like, you know, they'd been living in the provinces and um, the Cambodian educational system is, is not terribly strong, but they were just like, this is my chance. I'm going to do it. And so they were pursuing medical and banking and accounting degrees all at the same time, or like trying to be lawyers plus zoologists plus, I mean, it was just, they were just going to college classes every single day of the week, you know, 
from the time they woke up until sometimes midnight. And they were so dedicated and so much fun and so brilliant that, yeah, I was just kind of along for the ride. Once Once I got there, I was just like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. That sounds like such an amazing experience. What kind of zines did you help them to create? Well, I was there to kind of teach them the form because in my practice or belief system or history of writing, you teach someone how to do something and then they figure out what they're going to do with it. And since in the history of Cambodia, you know, women aren't really given much in the way of public voice. There are periods in history where they were really given no public voice. They often weren't taught to write. They're often, you know, expected to raise children and not really participate in any sort of life outside the home. And so my thinking, I mean, first of all, at the time, I not only knew how to do one thing, which was make zines. And so like, you know, my, my career and my life and like, it was my only skill anyway. So it was the only thing I was really going to be able to pass along. <laughs> so, um, but, but my thinking was like, I can, I can pass this one skill along and then if it's useful, we can figure out what to do with it later. And so I taught them how to make, you know, a very standard, like eight, page single a4 sheet eightfold zine and was just you know like here's how you make the physical object like now make a book and they were all like you know like i know what i'm doing and they would write the history of their town the history of their families the history of their um, neighborhood they would write folk tales or fables or stories their mom had told them or something weird that happened that last week and then what became a little bit crazy was that very quickly, once they started to write about their experiences or their families or the local histories that they remembered, it was clear. I mean, it became very, very clear that, that there was this political history that they didn't know anything about. And at the time, it was still you were not allowed to talk about the Khmer Rouge regime in schools and it wasn't allowed to appear in textbooks. You, you were really not supposed to talk about it in public and no politicians did. And so there was no, there was this like great repression of memory that was happening of, you know, the generation of people that was really much closer to my age that had sort of filtered down to these young women. And so they didn't really know anything about this particular bloody, horrible history during which Khmer Rouge, radical communist regime, marched into the streets of the major city, Phnom Penh, marched all of the residents out to the countryside and forced them to farm rice for three and a half years, or three, three years. Exact time is obviously not my forte. And during that process, murdered and or starved a quarter of the population of the country, just one of the largest like mass killings that the world has ever seen. And these young women whose parents had survived that didn't know about it. Wow. 
And so once we realized by reading their work that you could kind of piece this history together, all of a sudden, I mean, it's kind of okay to talk about now, but it was less okay to talk about at the time, we were committing a crime. And, you know, I sort of had to very carefully figure out then, do I just continue like hiding their work? No, the, the whole point of this is that they need to understand how their work fits into the world. So can we put this out safely into the world and let other people experience it? How, how, how do we now use this thing that is accidentally, you know, putting us all in potential danger, probably me worse than anyone else, which is probably the way that it should be. Um, but I didn't then want to have the option of leaving the country and have them be in some kind of continued danger. And, uh, you know, we ended up like making these zines available to English readers and collecting them and then building archives. Often these young women would then go back to the provinces and teach their neighbors how to make zines. And then through that, we really, you know, for a couple of years there, like built up this like really incredible thriving network of people that were just writing and telling their own stories, which happened to have, you know, major political implications, I think, on on the changes that were about to come to Cambodia. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the, like, as you were talking, I was thinking just about history and the way so many stories get lost in history, vital stories, especially yeah. vital stories from people who are disempowered or who, you know, don't have the advantages of entrenched power, political power. And so it's like, there's this feeling of, thank God, you know, that you did this work and got these people to record this stuff. Because in the absence of that, where does it go? It's just gone. And it's hard for, I think, it's hard for progress to be made in the absence of the truth, right? Yeah. I, I mean, we've, We've all been living that for a couple of years now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Mm 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and then part of the time that you spent in Cambodia puts you into contact with garment workers. I imagine because a central concern of your work has to do with uh, women's issues, women's rights, uh, the experience of being a woman in the world, that when you were on the ground in Cambodia, you noticed that a lot of Cambodian women worked, uh, those who were living in like Phnom Penh or in urban environments were working in the garment industry, often in horrific conditions and with no like labor unions or any kind of bargaining power or collective like uh, power, right? Yeah, well, it's a, the the union thing is is complicated there because there are actually several unions, and you are urged to join all of them, and so there are so many that none of them do anything, and then you know you're sort of involved in a union in name only that right doesn't end up having any bargaining power, and I. You know, it, how I first started paying attention to the garment industry while I was there was, of course, that, yeah, that was, it's there. But also that, you know, it became really clear I was working with these young women. They were, you know, eventually going to graduate from college. And, like, they had no job options. And, you know, maybe through various political networking, they would be able to get the jobs in the banks or become the doctor or achieve whatever professional goals they had set for themselves. As long as like the entire organization that ran the foundation that had built the dorm that they lived in backed their interests. But in general, the garment employee, the, the garment factories were the virtually the only employer of women at the time. And, you know, I mean, these girls weren't going to go work in the garment factory. They'd rather sit in a room and never speak to anyone about the books that they were reading constantly. But if they were in a position to need a job, like all of a sudden I was just seeing this future where women were finally able to, to educate themselves and then they would just be still not have any options. And so I started talking to garment workers and like kind of hanging out with garment workers at the same time that I was starting to socialize more with sex workers. And the there was a, a particular group of like trans rights activists that were working, that were also involved in the garment trade. And so there's this kind of interesting nexus of Things that were all happening at the same time. And uh, yeah, I just ended up spending more time in the neighborhood of garment factories and at uh, several points kind of snuck into garment factories to see what it was like, which is very illegal. And really, I was lucky to walk out of there with no holes in my body. And then I was able to like connect sort of in a in a larger scope way what 
both women and then like people who are non-binary or transgender might experience in the world if they happen to have been born in Cambodia. And that's really where like, you know, there's a whole like almost decade of journalism at Truth Out and places like this. A lot of the comic stuff comes from this as well. Um, That's just kind of filling in different spots of that life trajectory. And then I'm wondering, like, from a sequential standpoint, if as a result of these experiences on the ground, interacting with, you know, garment factory workers in Cambodia, if that then led you to start thinking about the, the hierarchy of fashion and then to, to thinking about models. Is that the way that it went or were you thinking about that stuff previously? I, well, the, I've been covering the garment industry for a while And I think, actually, actually, how this worked was that I'd been covering the garment industry as a reporter for a while, and then I did a um, an art show um, at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and it was like a like I would go in every day, and I, <laughs> yeah, writers always think that my art stuff is weird, so you might think this is weird, but. I would go in every day and I would rip apart a pair of jeans and whoever came into the space would sit with me and we would talk about ongoing activities in the garment industry in Cambodia, because what was happening at the time were these like mass faintings were happening in the, in the factories and just between, you know, 40 to like hundreds, I think at one point, maybe 1200 people total just would faint on the floor and so we were talking about like, like these mass paintings and they were kind of this mystery thing that was also maybe like a really smart labor organizing thing. And while we were like tearing this pair of jeans apart, the idea being that we were thinking about ways of unraveling the garment industry. And at some point, this group of youngish people came in. And they were just like psyched. They were just like, yeah. And they all sat down at the table with me and we're all start ripping apart those pair of jeans. They were just going at it. They were so like, they were like filled with venom and they were just like, yeah, fuck these jeans. I'm, you know, like, this is the best. Yay. I love art. And (laughs) I was like, so what was your day like? You know, like, what's up, dudes? So they had just quit the H&M that was just around the corner from the MCA. And they, this and they had just walked off the job. And H&M you know, being a, like a popular like mall clothing store, right? Popular For... mall clothing store that manufactures most of its good, goods in Cambodia. Okay. And, um, and, I, and I was like, wow, why? Tell me, you know, like, let's dish about the garment industry. And they were like, well, actually, the thing is that our air conditioning went out this is during the summer, our air conditioning went out and it was so hot. And, um, we just, we all, you know, we were all felt like we were going to faint and they just weren't going to turn it back on. And, um, you know, it's just, those aren't conditions anybody should have to work in. And I was like, what is happening right now? Every, the whole garment industry is fainting, you know, like this is amazing. And so then I was thinking about retail workers first. And so then I did a whole bunch of subterfuge 
interviews with retail workers who are totally not allowed to talk to press at all. And so it was actually more difficult to get them on the record than it was to like track down supermodels to interview. And so I did a whole thing on retail workers. And then once I had that in place, I was like, oh, it's the display side of the garment industry that is still missing. I'm going to find some models. And then I went and I um, talked to some models. And then for a little while, I was talking to models all the time and like hanging out with supermodels and they were awesome. But yeah, it's this, it's the same, the same issues that plague literally everyone from the, from the models to the garment workers, including our retail workers. Yeah. It's brutal. It's so brutal. I mean, it hasn't changed, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, we noticed that it's brutal a decade ago and it's still brutal. Did it surprise you that it was as brutal, like up and down the chain of command? You know, did, did the model stories, when you started to see the similarities to what you had experienced in Cambodia, did that surprise you? Or was it one of those things where you were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm probably cynical enough now that it wouldn't surprise me, but the the very exact methods that are used on models at the very top of the chain, say to convince them to take off their clothes for a shoot or, or be more naked than they are comfortable being to see that exact strategy also used to force garment workers to you know, stay late after work or, you know, do unpaid overtime or not use a chair, not have access to anything that they might need to get through the day did, did surprise me that no one's even trying to hide it, that we're just going to treat women the same all over the world as if no one is ever going to notice that shocked me. Hmm. Well, what we're talking about is, I guess, dark. <laughs> and there's a lot of darkness. You know, you're exploring these dark places and kind of uncovering these uncomfortable truths uh, throughout the collection. But you also, like something else that this book does very well is it uncovers the absurdities that are sort of embedded within the darkness sometimes. So, for example, there is the essay called The Legacy of the Sanitary Napkin Disposal Bag, which, again, this is something I love in a book where I'm like, you know, as a man, I'm not interacting with feminine hygiene products in a direct way, you know. Uh, and so I see them. I'm aware, aware of them, obviously. But just like one of these things that's hiding in plain sight, this history of how this stuff came to exist and you use it as an opportunity to explore the history of patents and the inequities in patent law as they pertain to the genders and to the true absurdity in the necessity of a bag to dispose of a sanitary napkin <laughs> and the way that like like women's bodies and their natural processes somehow have to be obscured from sight, right? It's like this 
this yeah. level of absurdity. Yeah, like like even the acknowledgement that we have to obscure them has to be obscured. Right. We have to hide, you know, like we shouldn't even be having this conversation. Listen, listen. I know obviously that maxi pads and tampons exist. I was not aware of the feminine sanitary napkin disposal bag. I didn't know this. I'm not in a women's restroom. You know, I'm not seeing this stuff. So this was an education for me. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, sometimes you see them in old universities, usually that were built by the night, by 1954, that are now unisex. Like sometimes they're still available and they usually have, I know what the exact brand of bag that they use. They're like multiple colors of brown and it says sanitary hygiene on the side in like a very pretty curly font with <laughs> serifs and everything. But yeah, it's it's excellent to me that there are people in the world that have never heard of them and I wish that I had never heard of them. That would be great. <laughs> well, thank you for ed- educating me. And there's also, I mean, uh, like other things, we're not going to be able to touch all of it, but film criticism, like you're very culturally aware and uh, there's a lot of great film critique and exploration of women's issues uh, that you've explored watching films, horror films in particular. You are a horror film fan still? Mm-hmm. You watch you know, a lot of although, horror? Yeah, I do. But I watch so much now that it's hard it's been hard lately to convince me to watch something new because i really i just feel like in a horror film i've once again i've kind of seen it all i went through it it's so funny i think about horror films i'm sorry to interrupt but i no. think about horror films and i had this very intense period in junior high where i went to the this is going to date me but i went back went to the video store and I feel like I watched every single one. I was so mm. into horror movies when I was in early adolescence. I watched a ton of them. Nowadays, like my time to watch movies is a lot uh, smaller than it used to be. And usually it's at night and I can't watch a horror movie before bed. That's mm. not, that doesn't appeal to me to like watch something really violent and then drift off to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Is this, is this how you roll? <laughs> Just watch like a... Yeah, I I mean I I do and I have done and and um you know I even have a a friend that I sometimes will call each other and turn on the same horror movie and just like <laughs> you know have sort of a string of horror movies or there's a there are a couple streaming services that just offer like endless running horror movies and put that on. But it is true like as an adolescent they teach you something that you don't have access to. I mean they they teach you anatomy. They teach you how the body works. They teach you, you know, like there are many object lessons about what you should not do to yourself or others. And they they kind of instill in you a sense of normalcy and also what is monstrous or not normal. And so I do feel like there's a part of me that is that maybe has never quite learned that or maybe is still interested in those questions of like how bodies work and, and how they go wrong. And that's so that, that adolescent urge that I think we maybe all went through, or maybe boys got to go through a little bit more publicly than, than girls did. Um, I, you know, like total respect for that, but yeah, I'm not, I might still be there. Well, I I mean, I think that, 
what I can say about horror movies, because I do enjoy them, is that as a theater goer, I think it's the best kind of movie to go see in a theater. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's so much fun. To it's be so in, much fun. Yeah. In a horror movie with like lots of other people and kind of having that shared experience. Yeah. And the willingness of the audience to go and be scared in a room of full of strangers is so delightful. You know, there is something like really warm and, and um, heartfelt about the trust that you're placing in other people when you allow yourself to watch a horror movie in their presence. And there is, you know, it does that, that fear response like translates to all sorts of like social positives really quickly. Like it is something that you can flip over into like sexual attraction or, you know, just sort of general enthusiasm, like very, very fast. And so there is um, a way that they are used for, you know, any sort of social or ostensible good in the world. But that's not why I'm interested in them. <laughs> I just, But it is this interesting thing of like, you know, until quite recently, they've been pretty thoroughly maligned as just junk. And I think that um, that's a short-sighted understanding of how horror films and horror media and narratives in our culture work. Well, and you're doing some curating for the reader. And I think there are particular horror films and filmmakers that speak to the deeper themes of not just body horror, but your entire body of work. And I'm thinking of, what is it, Vir Virginie Despent? I'm going to screw that name up, the French uh, filmmaker. Yeah, Despente. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Mare Zarki. Is that yeah. right? Mare yeah. Zarki's I Spit on Your Grave. Like you get into some of these, I think maybe lesser known, less commercial horror films that take on uh, like feminist or female themes and issues and subvert the genre in ways and often the point of these films seems to elude mainstream critics i think is your argument yeah and i think it i i think it's even you know and despentes kind of says this in a different way herself in her own writing but you know even creating a horror film from the point of view of a female character or a, a female writer already subverts the notion that we are given to believe is horror. And then for me, of course, it's really easy then to, to make that leap of like, yeah, well, you know, then as a woman who, you know, not anymore, because I'm too old for that, but, you know, bleeds out my sex hole once a month like <laughs> that is something that a lot of men would be disgusted by and so maybe maybe the whole thing about like gender and horror is entirely about hiding the fact that the tendency for capitalism would be to view women as monsters hmm. and there's uh what i think there's a line about, I think I spit on your grave where you say, 
It takes seriously the notion that rape may be prevented if women learn to defend themselves with violence. And so it's like this film, just as an example, is putting forth an idea and illustrating an idea that I think flies in the face of that notion you just described of viewing women as monsters. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. and if this is, if the world that we're living in and the culture that you've created is so inherently hostile to our interests, like what if we were to fight back? And is this the one that Ebert and like a lot of critics just completely <laughs> la- like panned It just com- didn't get it at all? Yeah. Ebert, like 20 years later on Oprah was asked what the worst movie he ever saw was. And everyone in the room starts laughing and he's just like, yep, they know already. I spit on your grave, you know, worst movie I've ever seen. It's like, okay. And I've met Ebert several times in Chicago and he's otherwise a pretty smart dude. So I could never quite understand how devoted he was to not understanding how that movie worked. To me, it's very simple. I mean, it's used in, you know, trauma sexual trauma coursework all over the country and a lot of like women centers sort of use it as a way of talking about like, let's reset this idea of what sexualized violence, what the outcome of sexualized violence could be in the public imaginary. Um, But yeah, he didn't get it all. Hmm. Well, one of the ways that this, book is structured or one of the ways that it all of these different essays holds together, at least from my perspective, is that it moves deftly from the outside in and then back again. So we're talking about, for example, the garment industry and clothing and like labor conditions in Cambodia. Then we're talking about models doing that work. And, you know, that work is very concerned with surfaces. And then there are portrayals of uh, women in horror films, as we've just discussed, and the ways in which those films, as you were saying, teach us about how the body can go wrong. And then there are essays in this book about the body going wrong, and they're concerned with your struggles with autoimmune disease and disability. And then things get very internal, mm. and the horror, <laughs> uh, you know, in uh, the body horror that you're experiencing is very much something that's on the inside and is unseen and not very well understood Mm. by even doctors. And along with those concerns, you do this wonderful job of diving into history again and illuminating for me, somebody who was just not on my radar, Paul Ehrlich, Nobel laureate, inventor of chemotherapy, and a guy who existed on like, the, this is my favorite thing. He existed on like soda water and cigars. Like literally that was it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of these great doctors who just like smoked like a chimney, drank water and was like, like phenomenally unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. Constantly was testing his own drugs on himself and then getting sick from them. Strange cool. guy too. Strange guy. Like I want to say somebody wrote a biography of him who worked for him, right? It was like his assistant yeah, or something. His, his, um, Martha Marquardt, um, his, 
like nursemaid. I mean, just would follow him around. She was technically his secretary, but like 100% took care of him, like body and soul. Um, and she just really, you know, maybe had some Stendhal syndrome because she just really thought he was the greatest, most genius person in the world. And there's no indication that he ever said a kind word to her or ever gave her a place to sit or was ever like aware of her as a human in his life at all. So yeah, her biography was fascinating. Well, and what other things that are fascinating, and I imagine as you were writing this were probably exciting to you. It's just this weird synchronicity that like, you know, Paul Ehrlich married into a textile family. Yeah. So here we have like this guy who you're writing about, I think primarily because of his connection to autoimmune disease mm-hmm. and then finding out that he also has some sort of connection to the garment industry, right? Yeah. It's just that time is a flat circle. It's all connected. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, in my research process, like those are the moments that I'm like, oh yeah, now I'm definitely doing this, Yeah, you know, where you're just like, oh, of course, the way that he is going to think about medicine is directly related to the fact that he thinks garments just appear on the table in the form of table linens. And he's not aware that his wife, you know, went through this whole crazy system and owns all these garment factories. So yeah, I'm all about those like minor moments that kind of build out to this larger picture of the world. But you don't, but this is not preconceived. This is stuff that you're stumbling into. And I think it has that, like you said, that affirmative effect where it's like, okay, I'm on the right track. Like this is. Yeah. But there are, of course, like hundreds of other things that I stumble into that, that don't end up doing that. You know, I'm just reading and researching and thinking and asking questions and Googling weird word combinations constantly. And so there are sort of hundreds of ways that all of these essays could have gone had they elicited more of those like, you know, humor moments for me. Because when you combine two bad things together, it's funny, I guess. Speaking of which, in your research, you mentioned weird word combinations in Google. What was it? What did you say at the top of the conversation? Like capitalism bullshit or something? Like it was, it was something like that. Bullshit democracy. Oh, bullshit democracy. Bullshit democracy. Is this something that you do on the regular? Like where you will just to be to to try to generate ideas or to find things online that might help you? Do you do that? It's not. It's not like a regular practice. But remember when like. The internet was new and people were like, you can look things up, you know, like you just type words in. I remember I was at dinner with um, this guy named Michael Gerald, who's now an entertainment lawyer. But at the time he ran this, um, he was the front man for this band called Killdozer. And he- That's that's a great trajectory, by the way. Yeah, no, he, I mean, is brilliant on both fronts, but- he and his partner were sort of talking about like, it's the internet is amazing. You could just like type words and then information comes back to you. And they would update me every time we hung out with them on the status of their internet search for the phrase Hitler jokes. And I was always like, like sort of following in my mind, the trajectory both of like Hitler jokes, but also this idea that you could kind of watch how a culture shifts if you just followed certain bizarre combinations of things ah. and how many people were engaged in thinking about them. 
because now Google Hitler jokes, it's not funny anymore. But, you know, mid 1990s, it was something else. So it's devolved. We're in a process of devolving. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just... In case you hadn't noticed, yeah. things are devolving. Yeah. That seems, and that seems like I get that. Like that seems like one of the markers, right? If like the Hitler jokes are getting evil, then yeah. we're not in, we're not in a good time. No, no. It is. I think that's true most of most kinds of comedy, right? If the jokes stop being funny, then things are things are getting bad out there. Hmm. So speaking of things getting bad, could you describe for my listeners just like a little bit about the health challenges that you you faced? Like you've had some autoimmune disorders, you've dealt with disability, um, you write very bluntly, and it's very painful uh, to read about, about the struggles inherent in that and the loneliness of being ill and the alienation that goes along with it. Yeah. And actually it it's directly related to the garment industry work in a way that is evident to me in that book, but um, that it, I didn't necessarily make overt in body horror. Um, but, you know, that first essay that opens with um, the largest garment workers uprising in the history of Cambodia and the prime minister ordering uh, military police open fire on the protesters. You can kind of tell, but I didn't, you know, I was not the center of that story. That wasn't a personal essay. So I was there. And so as I was running from machine gun fire, um, because my friends and sources were being shot at, you know, I'm looking down the street because <laughs> got to run fast when machine guns are shooting at you. And my legs started hurting. My feet started hurting in this really particular way. And so I'm literally running, fearing for my life. I wasn't being, I wasn't the target. I wasn't being shot at, but it was one of the scarier moments in my life. And I'm totally realizing that there's something wrong with my body in a way that I hadn't realized it before, that this wasn't just, oh, obviously I'm running in a weird situation and my foot hurts. It was like, oh no, I've been feeling this for a while and now I am under all of this stress and I am completely consumed by the realization that there's just something wrong and I don't know what it is. And that really kicked off this exploration, you know, <laughs> medical journey, long-standing, ongoing situation to figure out what the real problem is. But when I finally received the first in a series of diagnoses, it was for my second autoimmune disease. And that was quickly followed by a third and then a fourth and then a fifth. And eventually there were nine. And then I got over one of them. And so then it was back to eight. And so what ended up happening was that somehow I had become someone who just accrues autoimmune diseases, like it's going out of style. Like I <laughs> like love them or something. My, my body <laughs> apparently does. And so, yeah. So for a good couple of years, it was every, every couple of months, it was like, oh, weird. My cheek itches 
And I would go to the doctor and the doctor would be like, yeah, actually, that's a really rare autoimmune disease. And like, we have to put you on this new medication. And it was kind of that crazy. Now that's calmed down a little because uh, I've changed everything about my life. I no longer get shot at by machine guns. Some most of the time. Where, where I, do you live now? I, where do you live now? <laughs> oh, I live in upstate New York. Okay. I live in a teeny little, very rural village. It's totally bananas, but it is not, uh, but I'm not traveling 300 days out of the year anymore. Yeah. I grow a lot of my own food. I've changed my diet entirely. And so now things are more controllable. I have slightly better sense of how things work and I'm much better at doing my own research, which is, I think ended up being like the central key to figuring out what was wrong. Cause and can I just stop you there? Because I'm yeah, curious. Yeah. You know, you say you grow your own food. You've changed a lot about your life, like the environment that you live in. But I'm imagining what you eat. Is that does that have a lot to do with like beating back these autoimmune disorders, or at least help making them more manageable? Yeah, a lot of people with autoimmune disease find that certain dietary changes can really help limit the symptoms that they experience. But this kind of thing isn't studied terribly well. And so it really is this thing where you just have to kind of trial and error it. And then when you have a body like mine, which is just really willing to go autoimmune under any circumstances, you have to kind of re-experiment all the time or become very, very sensitive. And so um, at this point, you know, I can kind of eat a food and realize that my body's reaction to it has shifted or realize that I can no longer eat that food or that that food is now on the no list. Or sometimes, as is the case with cheese, although not as much as I would like it to be, I realize that I can eat a little bit more of it than I previously was able to. And so it it is about food, but it is also about developing such an intense sensitivity to your body's reactions, both on a physical, but also on a like, almost like metaphysical level, that, that you can kind of ward off uh, potential um, damage or hurt at an earlier stage than, than you could when you didn't have those sensitivities. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, I, I've, I find this, I mean, I, I'm not dealing with the same thing, but I just find as I age that my relationship with food and my sensitivity to food has changed. Like something as simple as like, I can't really eat too much at night or I won't be able to sleep well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, and like I have to, there are certain things I just don't eat. They don't agree with my body and that kind of stuff. It didn't used to be the case when I was younger, I could eat anything. Yeah. And I loved being the person who could eat anything. I mean, I, obviously you can't travel the world as much as I did without being like, I don't care. Just put, you know, I'll just put it in my mouth. I mean, I ate some wacky, wacky shit, but I couldn't do that now. And very recently, like also, I don't even think this is about disease. I, th I think this is about age, but like I stopped enjoying wine. Yeah. Like that's What's me that too. What's that about? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what it's about for me is I can't sleep. I will it's wake up. Sleep. Like I, I can fall asleep, but then if I have the wine, I will wake up more often than not, or mm. 
if I have too much wine, I'll feel like shit. I can't do a hangover. I have too much going on. I can't do it. It's just not worth it to me. And then, and then after a while I'm like, well, why even have one glass? And it's like, well, because I enjoy it. And it's like, okay, do you really? I know. Maybe I do, but I think it's just, I'm old and it's over. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if over is exactly the way to look at it. No, it's not, no, it's not entirely over, but I just, you know, once or once in a while I'll have some alcohol. But then I start thinking like, from a health standpoint, it's this is most toxic shit ever. It's just mm-hmm. toxic liquid. Why are we drinking this? <laughs> you know, like what is it doing for you? Uh, I mean, maybe it's like round, you know, sanding off the edges or whatever, you know, helping you in social situations. But well, my know. doctor, who like there's a limit to the amount of wine that I'm supposed to drink, and I'm not supposed to have hard alcohol at all because a lot of my medications are very reliant on my liver. But my doctor during the Trump years was like, was like, okay, I know that we said that you can only have one glass of wine a week, but during the years that this man is president, I think it's okay to up that to three. <laughs> like you just do what you need to to get by, honey. You're gonna that be is, fine. It's the uh, <laughs> Hippocratic oath in in action, right there, right? For real. <laughs> yeah. How compassionate is that? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And you know what I think about, you know, you mentioned the years that we just lived through and how tumultuous they were. And then you talk about body horror and being in a set of circumstances medically that does not provide you with clean answers and courses of action. And that causes you to have to do so much of the work on your own to live in a state like that is not something that most of us, especially in our youth when we're healthy and sort of oblivious, realize is even possible. And then I dovetail back to when you mentioned earlier how body horror had portended a lot of the things that ultimately came to pass in the political moment that we just lived through. I think the pandemic did that for everybody. It suddenly threw all of us into a situation where the medical landscape, the the very basics of our health and well-being were in a state of flux and there was a, a deep mystery uh, around all that. Nobody knew exactly, for a time anyway, and I still think to some degree, nobody knew exactly how the virus worked and how it was transmitted and what we had to do. We were wiping down our groceries and all this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of the hostility and frustration that people felt irrationally and not had to do with suddenly being in this state where they were like, wait a minute, you don't know? Like, who are these doctors? And like, you know, 
I've been through that. You know, my son has disabilities and that preceded the pandemic, you know, the, his diagnoses and that put my wife and I into that, uh, awareness very acutely where you're suddenly like, oh my God, like they just don't know in a lot of senses. And yeah. it's on us. So much of it is on us to figure out not only therapeutically, but also educationally, you know, there's not a great system in place in the United States of America to support people who are going through these sorts of things. So I think that, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think that's one of the reasons why this book has resonated with people and why your stories about your health situation in particular have resonated because the, the world is sort of caught up with what you were talking about a bit. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. It's, it continues to amaze. I mean, I was raised by doctors who were bananas and wrongheaded, <laughs> like lying constantly. And yet it continues to surprise me that people who devote their entire lives to figuring out how human bodies work and how to keep them from failing have no clue how to pre prevent a cold, you know, or like deal with diseases like certain autoimmune diseases that have been around since like the 1300s. I mean, this, these aren't new, you know, none of this stuff is new. COVID-19 might be a little bit newer, but coronaviruses are not new. So yeah, there's, I think also that, that like break with trust is pretty hard to come back from. Yeah. I think that's one thing we're seeing now, especially. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's difficult because I think, there's sort of two sides of it for me. There's the side of it where I'm like, yeah, you know, one should do their own research as, as that, that phrase kind of got thrown around a lot when it came to like the, the pandemic. And at the same time, I do think that there is expertise in the world that should be honored and that there are doctors and scientists who do great work and we should listen to them, you know, but yeah. there are times you know, where it's necessary for a person to really go out and be their own advocate health-wise and to maybe try to find solutions independently because the systems in place offer either not much or nothing at all. And so I think it's like navigating those two impulses for me has been challenging because I don't want to be the moron who like, you know, goes off and cooks up his own solution, which is wrongheaded <laughs> and ill and ill-informed. But right. I also don't want to be somebody who's kind of a rube and just listens to doctors who have no idea what they're talking about or who accepts the fact that there is no solution Yeah, it just when there actually is one. And just, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like trying to do all that. It's quite a lot for an individual person to have to assume from a responsibility standpoint, is it not? It is. And when you then kind of add in, you know, again, lump it back onto the top of the compost heap, this idea that one of the ways to advocate for the betterment of an individual situation within any system is by organizing and advocating for a larger scale systemic change among other people that have been going through similar things. As I talk about with the garment workers and with the models, 
you know, this idea that like sick people could form their own union, that we could actually like start to really make some real demands about the world. That's an even more exhausting prospect, you know, and yet that may end up being exactly what's necessary to get any, any deep changes made to how the medical system treats sick people. Well, you know, you say some pretty blunt things in this book. I'm going to paraphrase, but one of the things you say about being disabled is that like people are horrible. <laughs> like I think in terms that's an of exact quote, yeah, people like are how, horrible. <laughs> you 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 learn this, and I mean, I think that's an emo that that's an emotional line, and it resonates with me because I've had the same thought. You know, when it comes to being a person who is disabled or being a caregiver for a child who is disabled, in my case, like you learn a lot about the people around you and how they respond to suffering and how they respond to you when you happen to be in a not so great state. And the lessons you learn cannot, can sometimes be difficult and not so pleasant. And well, it, and very similar to this idea that I would study the garment industry and walk away from it with a disdain for clothing. Like, yeah, I, my, my feeling most of the time is, the people are never going to learn. They're just never, until they get sick themselves, they're never going to be in a position to be like, oh, right, all humans deserve care. And uh, yeah, I, I the, your one's proximity to disability or illness or death is treated very similarly to how like, a, a leper used to be treated, you know, hundreds of years ago. These things exist in the world. They're not going to go away. And there are perfectly reasonable people in the world that are dealing with some of these things. It's completely bananas to me that we haven't figured out a way as a culture to like allow for them to exist in the world. And for people who are sick or have disabilities to move through the world unmolested and yet and, and to be able to tell stories because these narratives as you say are often suppressed yeah a lot of people just recoil from even wanting to entertain stories that have to do with disability or you know chronic illness because it makes people uncomfortable and afraid or whatever it is or they just are revolted by it somehow and that is a problem because it's a problem at the level of representation, but it's also a problem at the level of reality. It's like, you know, if you just want to live in a world where there's no illness or disability, okay, you might be able to have your way for a while, but eventually it's yeah. time's time's going to run out. It's coming for us all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you'd have to, you, you would have to live in a very small room and everyone make everyone sign um, agreements that they would lie to you all the time. Mm -hmm. If like, that's how you're, how you're going to get through the world. And that's not interesting to me at least. Well, I would say too, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit that I was probably far more blind to these issues prior to having a child with disabilities and had a lot of the same blind spots that I sort of bristle against now. And I think maybe the question that I'm left with is like, how do we as people develop greater empathy and awareness of one another and our various struggles 
so that like it doesn't take me getting sick or me having a disabled child to suddenly yeah. develop compassion and sensitivity to these things. You know what I'm saying? Like what's I the, I guess reading is a great way. I mean, that's maybe one of the great functions of reading literature is to have access to other lives and places and interiorities and to become intimate with them without having to actually experience them yourself. Yeah, but as you say, it's it's really difficult to convince people who haven't had experiences of illness or disability or death to engage with them in a direct way. But my, you know, my um, my dad was. I'm working on a second memoir right now, and my father figures prominently in it because he was a medical doctor. He was a neuroradiologist, and his primary job was diagnosing people with MS. And so he was sort of very involved in how the conversation around autoimmune disease emerged, especially in the 1970s through the 90s. And what we didn't realize until the 1990s was that he had MS and he had been hiding it from his whole family for my entire lifetime. Very likely he sort of realized that he was experiencing symptoms right around the time that I was born. And, you know, at the time MS with a, was a death sentence. It also would have meant that he had to have, he would have had to leave his job. So it was a labor issue. And, and also this, like, there's this weird, you know, it's not only a sense of shame, but there's also this like genuine question of dignity that sort of plays into it. And I don't think it's that uncommon for people to experience so much shame or desire to hide for other reasons what they're going through on a physical level, just so that they can get through the workday. That, yeah, I have big concerns about how that empathy is going to be transmitted when it's really hard for people to be honest with themselves, much less create work that conveys honesty about, you know, the genuine physical experience of being a body in the world. Mm. Well, this book does that and it's one of its virtues and it sort of ends with the ultimate body horror, which is death, <laughs> which is coming for us all. And you had a, like you came close to dying. Yeah. How, like how close? I'd be mean, like really close. Like were you on, were you like last rites close or was it more just like you could possibly go? Uh, well, I'd been given a bad medication and it took out my liver. And so there was a question of, of whether or not my liver was um, failing or had failed or what was happening exactly. But the the doctors I was working with were kind of like, well, call us if it gets real bad. And I was kind of like, so if my liver fails, I'm supposed to call you? Like, how does that work? And they were like, <laughs> yeah. So, so they kind of weren't taking it very seriously, but also I couldn't get out of bed. And so there was a period of about three months where I was just lying in bed. I was completely unable to move or think or, or really do anything because um, it wasn't clear whether or not I had a functioning liver. And then I sort of started to feel better. 
and my liver just kicked in. I mean, sometimes that's, this is the amazing thing. Livers are amazing. If you don't know, if you don't know anything about the body, you need to learn enough about the liver to appreciate the liver because like when your heart starts to give out, if you have a heart attack, your liver will try to pump blood back up through your body to get the heart restarted. The liver can regenerate. It can like try to fill in other functions of other organs. It's just this amazing thing. So apparently my liver started working again. It started healing itself. Then I went and had dinner with a friend and it was good. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one of those pieces that it's kind of written like a short story, but it doesn't really describe events so much as it describes like an internal journey that was the moment when I realized like I was no longer a person that was waiting for death. I was now a person that was alive and just being in the world like a normal person would be. And it was such an amazing experience and relief to just suddenly be in a room full of people. We went out to have sushi and sushi is one of my favorite foods. And I told some joke to my friend and my friend had kind of been a dick when I was sick. And, and so there were all these questions about like, should I go out to dinner with him? Should I trust him? And then he's, you know, he's a guy with money and he's like, and he tells jokes and he has a really loud laugh and he's like big and burly and it's kind of a surfer dude. And so he, when he laughs, like the whole room gets excited about whatever it is he's laughing about. And so I told some joke and, and he laughed and then I laughed. And when I, when I laugh uncontrollably, it's pretty amazing. Like it's an amazing experience because first of all, I can't breathe at all. So I can't really pay attention to what's going on in the room, but people are just like, what is happening right now? And it's very, very infectious. And so we were at this dinner and he was laughing and then I was laughing. And afterwards I realized, oh, I haven't either made anyone laugh or laughed myself in, I don't know how long, but maybe a year, maybe it's been two years, maybe it's been even longer than that. And also I just ate sushi. And also everyone in this room is happy because like my friend and I just told this dumb joke or whatever. And, and that was what made me remember what being alive is about. And it was such an amazing experience to like suddenly be alive again. Yeah. I remember, I remember the exact moment that I, that I sort of, came upon that realization we were leaving the sushi restaurant and I just was you know energized I was just filled with this thrill of like being a girl in a body in the world you know this normal thing for most people that I was just like overcome with enthusiasm for hmm. that's what that piece is about well it's a lovely book and it's such a smart book and I really enjoyed uh, the kind of going along for the ride and did so with some envy for this like adventurous, intellectual, travel-filled life that you have led. Uh, we didn't even get to Detroit. Like readers are going to just have to dive in and explore that uh, on their own. But there's, there's a lot. There's enough out there. They can, they can figure it out. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad. And you're feeling well these days, or, or more or less well? It's you a look journey. Well. It's a journey. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate the time. Congratulations on this new edition of Body Horror. And I wish you well on the memoir that you're working on, right? That's the next project. That's the next project. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck with it. Well, thank you, Brad. This was really a delightful chat. Okay, there we go. That was my conversation with Anne Elizabeth Moore. Her new book is called Body Horror, Capitalism, Fear, Misogyny, Jokes. It is the official May pick of the Other People Book Club, available now from The Feminist Press. If you want to find Anne Elizabeth Moore on the internet, go to AnnElizabethMoore.com. Follow her on Twitter and on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Body Horror. Available now wherever books are sold from the Feminist Press. If you would like to sign up for the book club, just go to OtherPPL.com. You'll see the link. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this show whenever possible. If you had a good experience and you would like to support the work that I do, you can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get yourself another people t-shirt at otherppl.com. Sign up for the newsletter that I do once a week. It's free. You can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. You can watch the show on the Other People YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have feedback, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. Coming up next on The Other People Show, I will be in conversation with Ivy Pakoda, who has a new novel out that's getting a lot of buzz. It's called Sing Her Down, and that will be happening on Sunday. So stay tuned. 